Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk. I'm Ben Coleman, and tonight I'm hosting my good friend, Will Long. Will is the CEO of Numenar Analytics, and with the election three weeks away, I thought it would be great to deep dive into how campaigns think about winning over voters. Uh, Will is a recent graduate of Harvard College and decided to pursue the startup path and is deep into the numbers and the analytics for a number of campaigns around the country. So we'll explore how he got into this business and then what it means to actually have a voter file on somebody. So Will, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Very exciting to be here, first time on a podcast. So I wanna dive right in with how you got involved in politics. What was your first touch with either campaign or what kind of sparked your interest in, in pursuing this path? You know, it's kind of funny because I've never been a big political campaign guy. So I, you know, my first and only real uh, involvement with campaigns was knocking doors for Marco Rubio one weekend in New Hampshire back in 2016. And uh, so my, my background is mostly in, in technology in Silicon Valley. So I had worked at um, Amazon for a while doing machine vision there. And then I spent some time working on big data at Palantir and always thought I was going to go do that. Um, but I think this weekend really piqued my interest. Uh, in particular, I, I, I think I got exposed to the kinds of campaign tools and methodologies that you know people in a big presidential campaign use. And so, you know, that just kind of got me interested in the the world of campaigns and what all was out there with respect to the technology they use and and the data and and how it all kind of comes together. So, you know, after the 2012 election, there was on the, at least the GOP side a realization that, you know, their data infrastructure was not in the right shape in order to compete on a national scale. And there was a huge effort to to kind of reform that. You were obviously on the ground four years later in 2016 when the establishment went up against the juggernaut that turned out to be Donald Trump, who's now our president, obviously. But what kind of technology did you see in 2016 at that time that either the GOP was using or like, how are they using it? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a good framing. Um, I think the, in the aftermath of 2012, like you said, there was a pretty big, um, uh, I think, shift in the way that the GOP thought about data. They realized that they needed to have a really big investment in it. And, um, you know, they put out this thing called the growth and opportunity report that kind of lays out, um, you know, a little bit of the thinking about how the GOP is going to move forward with respect to um, data and how they use it in campaigns. Um, I think what's interesting about 2016 is, you know, every every presidential candidate has um, their own slightly different way of of doing it. So they have their own vendors, they have their own uh, analytics firms. And so it looks a little bit different for each candidate. Um, for Rubio, um, you know, they, he used a particular set of candidate uh, of, of vendors. Um, I happened to use the Walk app that they were that they were deploying, um, and I remember being pretty underwhelmed uh, with the quality. And I just, you know, distinctly remember that uh, you know the, the performance wasn't great. The user interface looked pretty bare bones, and I thought, you know. Um, why is it that a major presidential candidate, you know, someone that's very viable is using something like this and is it hurting his chances of winning? Um, so I think ultimately part, part of the, part of, I think the context here is that the RNC operates in a very um, decentralized way when it comes to 
uh, vendors and analytics and data. And in many ways, um, there's a whole ecosystem of different players out there. And so Rubio had a particular set of subset of those, those groups. And so that's kind of what I had exposure to. And talk, walk us through the Walk app. Like, what was it like as an end user? What kind of data did you provide you with? And what was the purpose of it? Yeah, yeah. I won't go too, too deep into the specifics. Um, uh, but I, you know, in broad terms, it was, you know, it was very, very bare bones. Um, you know, it would tell you basic things like name, like a voter's name, their address, and it'd give you like a couple of buttons about, you know, press here to, to mark this person as canvassed, uh, press here to, to see their, a, a little script they'd give you like, you know, hello, my name is XXX. I'm a volunteer for Rubio, you know, uh, you know, it, it was a very, uh, in some ways, a pretty unnatural script to, to have to read in front of these, these people's doors. Um, but it, you know, it was pretty much just that there's, there are no bells and whistles at all. Um, very, very straightforward. Um, and I, I do remember it crashing, uh, pretty, pretty consistently, uh, over the course of that weekend. Um, so, you know, I just thought it's something that a undergraduate with a weekend of worth of time on their hands could probably hack together a better version of. And so that was kind of my experience with that. And you mentioned, you know, the, the Republicans and the RNC in specific having a more decentralized approach to data. What is the what do the Democrats have? Like what are they different? Do they have a similar approach? Like what's their mindset towards kind of debt aggregation and deployment? Yeah, no, I th think I think it's pretty it's kind of the polar opposite. And it's kind of funny because it mirrors their their economic philosophy a little bit. You know, everything very centralized. Um, they have one big system called NGP Van that pretty much does everything for them. Um, and I think there are some benefits that come with that with respect to, you know. Um, sort of advantages of, of scale and, um, and standardization, but, uh, you know, potentially it comes at a little bit at the cost of uh, competitiveness, um, innovation. Um, and I think that would set them a little bit farther behind if the, if the Republican side had something, you know, competitive with that. Um, so I, yeah, I would say the Democrats generally have a very uh, standardized set of tools that are kind of part of the fabric a little bit, whereas the Republican Party, on the other hand, has kind of taken the approach of having a bit of a free market um, competition of different firms, different vendors, different software providers, different analytics firms. And do you think the, the 2012 effort to bring the GOP into the 21st century, would that actually worked? Or is like, where, where's the progress on that eight years later? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it's, I think it's so in many ways, you know, when I first came into the space, I thought, you know, the party is we're so far behind when it comes to technical talent, when it comes to a culture of of innovation and and, and thinking about data and technology in a forward thinking way, um, that it's kind of easy to be critical of it. But there were many ways uh, that I thought it was actually very commendable. Um, in particular, you know, like we already mentioned with 2012, they invested a lot of resources in putting together a really strong, very standardized, and importantly, openly, like sort of openly available data file, a national voter file, and anyone running as a Republican could use it. Um, and 
you know, vendors working with those campaigns could use it. So it was a fairly open ecosystem. It was a bit of a free market. So there weren't any huge barriers to entry for a recent college graduate, you know, just coming out and, and, and with, with a bit of a heart to try and help out. Um, whereas I don't think something like that would have been possible uh, working on the Democratic side. So I think, you know, Numenar is in some ways a, uh, a testament to the uh, potential advantage of that kind of um, approach. Mm -hmm. So walk us through the, the journey from, you know, canvassing for Rubio in 2016. It sounds like your experience from a user perspective wasn't the greatest. You have a tech background, you know, you know how to code, you know, you, you probably have thoughts. So leaving that, that experience, what was the journey you then went on to actually get to Numenar? Yeah, um, you know, so I think the scene is essentially, you know, January 2019. Um, it's start of my senior spring. Um, I'm I'm in the middle of writing my senior thesis, struggling classes, about to graduate. So, and I'm thinking about, you know, taking an offer, going back to Silicon Valley, um, and and sort of pursuing that. You know, nice paycheck, cozy perks. You know, not not a bad setup. Um, but I just, you know, kept thinking a lot about where, um, where sort of my passion and interest and skills intersect with something that's needed. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people think the same way in college, you know, doing something different, stepping out and doing something that's, you know, you're uniquely positioned to be able to do. And for me, that was always being at the intersection of, uh, technology and being a conservative and being interested in politics. And, you know, turns out there aren't a huge number of people at that intersection. And I happened to know that there was a need um, based on my experience canvassing for Rubio that uh, there was a dearth of qualified technical folks in the, in the party helping out campaigns. And so I just started calling you know, and talking to folks, I didn't have any big campaign connections. So just took it one step at a time. And, you know, one intro leads to the next a little bit. And that's one of the huge advantages of being in college is that you're kind of at the hub of a lot of different, you know, connections and a lot of people who are willing to talk to you and help out. And um, so I think we talked to something like 50 people over the course of the next few months, um, just trying to get a sense of what campaigns are like, what they do, what they think about, how they're structured, what kinds of tools they have. Um, and a lot of people who are at the helms of a lot of these big existing vendors and firms actually were more than happy to, you know, take calls with us and tell us about their business. And uh, in some cases, even invest and, and uh, you know, uh, give us business. And so, again, part of that part of one of those things that I, I really, you know, had a very positive experience with, um, you know, just coming at it as someone who wanted to help with a pretty open mind about what, what the problems could be. So, um, so quick question, as you did those interviews with the, the campaigns and with the folks who ran this, like, what were some of the surprising insights that you came away with? Yeah, that's a great question because I do, you know, I do remember a lot of things just being so, so weird. And, and I mean, the campaign tech space is such a niche space. You know, it's not something I think a lot of people necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, 
Yeah. You know, it's hard now being so normalized to it. I'm trying to think of, you know, what, what would have caught me as really surprising back then. Um, I think one thing was what kind of data was, what was meant by voter data? You know, I think people have like this um, amorphous like concept in their minds of what voter data is, but actually, ha you know, getting it in your hands, seeing what it looks like, you, you know, you know, being able to play around with it, you, you really get a sense that, yeah, there's, um, there is, as a matter of public record, um, individual level data about every single registered voter in the country. Um, and that's publicly available data. And it's a really, really interesting, compelling, as someone who's, you know, has a bit of a background in data, and has worked in a lot, a lot with data in different, you know, um, contexts, Voter data in particular is a really, really fascinating um, kind of uh, material to work with because obviously it's data about actual people. Um, and and um, obviously that comes with a lot of responsibilities as well. But um, thinking about how to leverage that in a way that um, serves, you know, campaigns, of course, but also people themselves um and how it can help improve because american democracy made a very you know we, we made a very conscious decision when we decided to run our democracy this way to make data something that's publicly available and voter records available publicly available and so i you know i always think that we made that decision uh with an eye towards how that could help improve the strength of our campaigns and our democracies and the engagement between people who vote and people who run for office uh, in a way that you know countries in Europe, for example, don't seem to share. So I think that was really one of the most eye opening things, you know, just in those first few months talking to these people. And so what what is publicly available? You know, Ben Coleman, the voter in, in Dallas, Texas, you know, I know you can't dive into my file right now. But like, what would be available in the general sense that people might not be aware of? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the the basic voter file contains pretty standard things like you know your your name your mailing address or where you registered to vote um sometimes it'll include phone numbers uh sometimes it, it will always include sort of your voting history so which elections in the past you voted for uh if you uh, casted a republican ballot in a primary or a democratic ballot in the primary um and uh and then, so so that's sort of what comes with your basic publicly available off the shelf voter file. Um, and then generally what what what's done is that's matched with commercial data. so so data that um, is is usually part of like a a, a consumer aggregator, um, consumer data aggregator will put together things like um, demographic information, uh, socioeconomic information, um, consumer behavior, uh, that kind of stuff. And then that's where, you know, the, the file kind of balloons to maybe 300 or 400 different columns of, of different data points. And obviously that the sparsity very much depends on the, the voter, but in general, um, it's, it's pretty accurate. It's pretty good. And so how predictable are people? And where I'm getting at is like, if you have these columns of data, can you pretty well know if I'm going to be pro-choice or pro-life or you know, for higher taxes, for lower taxes, for school choice, against school choice, like how deep into that can you say, hey, this is Ben's profile? 
Yeah. Um, you know, there was an interesting study done on this actually. Um, I can't, I can't reference it, unfortunately. Uh, but it, it's something like with, um, with five different data points, and I think it's going to be something like sex, ethnicity, zip code, um, uh, maybe a couple, I'm, I'm forgetting the other things, but with about five different data points, you can correctly predict how about 85% of voters will, will vote in, you know, an election. And uh, in some ways, that's pretty concerning. <laughs> uh, but in other, but it, it does go to illustrate, um, you know, there there is quite a bit of predictive power there, even with just a, 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 the the core set of um, features. Uh, and then, of course, you layer on everything else, and then you know, you can get quite good. Yeah, there's so much to explore. That I want to finish out the story of Numenar. So you. You know, you, you found this niche. You you talked to the the um, the folks with Insight. You know, what's unique about your situation? You know, Scott Adams, the author of Dilbert, talks about this concept of the talent stack. You know, if you can find two or three things that you're in the top seventy five or top twenty five percentile in, you know, combine them, you all of a sudden get in the top one percent or point zero one percent of society. This is where the entrepreneurs come out, and you know, your data background and your tech kind of savvy combined with political wisdom and uh, not wisdom but political interest and knowledge is that perfect perfect stack so how did you what did you start numenar what was the intent of the organization like how did you what was your value proposition to the market yeah um well i mean first of all i think your your point about um sort of being in, in, in a unique position talent wise is is totally right i mean i think i was one of maybe five people at the college who had who had ever attempted a, a joint concentration in computer science and government, um, which is something which is a, a, a kind of unique concentration where you're trying to you're interested in the intersection of two things. Um, and so, you know, even in college, I knew that I was doing something that was pretty, pretty unique. And I think the payout, or I guess that's one way to put it, but you know, the payout of, of, of being in some a, a unique position like that is potentially really, really high, I think. Um, so I think I, you know, I found an area I was really interested in. I thought there was a great need for. Um, I started it with two other co-founders, um, Luke, uh, who was a childhood friend of mine, actually, from we grew up about a mile, a mile apart in Oklahoma. And uh, he went to Columbia, studied computer science, worked at Google, worked at Goldman Sachs for a bit. Very, very qualified, you know, probably top, you know, 0.1% engineers in in the world, honestly, really, really smart guy. And then on the other side, we, we our, our political chief strategist, Arjun, um, you know, had spent time working on presidential campaigns, and now he's doing his, his PhD in, in American politics. And so extremely sharp guy, again, uh, with a, a, huge, a great background in statistics and modeling. And so I think with the combination of those things, we had a really, really solid uh, pitch, even just you know, with three resumes, I think going into this space. Um, yeah, I think to, to, to finish off, you know, the, the story of Numenar and I think where we were trying to fit in, I think at the very beginning, it was very much just trying to learn what was needed um, in the space. And um, I think for all of us as conservatives, we were also particularly interested in building a product that um, conservatives, and in this case, Republicans um, could use and that would in some way try to bring us back to parity a little bit 
with what um, NGP Van and all of these uh, extremely sophisticated democratic vendors were doing um, that we just didn't see a parallel to in the Republican side. So we wanted to kind of fill that void a little bit. Um, and particularly, we, we wanted to focus at the very beginning on down ballot races. We thought there was a lot of money, a lot of sophistication at the Senate level, especially in the congressional and the statewide level, but not much attention being paid to state house, state Senate races, even down, even further down ballot races, and um, the kinds of techniques that were um, being used at these bigger campaigns, you know, just wasn't wasn't being shared, I guess, down down the down the line. So we needed, we knew we wanted to build a software company that was going to be able to scale and bring this this kind of uh, technology and data to, you know, eventually thousands of campaigns. Uh, we knew we wanted to focus on Republican campaigns. We knew we wanted to focus on down ballot campaigns. And uh, and we also knew we wanted to um, push the envelope when it came to how we think about and use data, uh, political data. And so all of those things kind of came together to, um, uh, essentially, we, we ended up building an end-to-end -end integrated artificially intelligent campaign system, which is the first uh, essential you know, application of AI to to campaign campaigns and campaigning. And uh, the way we did that was by building a system that, you know, in some in some ways, when you first look at it, it looks like a CRM. It has all the registered voters in your district. It has them in a nice CRM type system where you can see that each individual voter profile, you can see there all the information that I, you know, previously previously described. Uh, and then where the AI comes in is it it builds models on top of that data that predict interesting behavior. So things like who they're likely to vote for, whether they're going to turn out to vote in this election or not. And uh, obviously, if you can predict that for every voter in your race, then you know who's going to win the race. Uh, you know if you're if you're down or if you're up, and if you're down, how many votes you need to to win, and which votes you need to win. Importantly, um, and uh, and then we knew that for these small small down ballot races, you know they even that even showing them which voters they needed to target wasn't really enough. Um, so we actually ended up building a full field operation to, you know tool. So calling texting, email, direct mail, uh, Facebook advertising, canvassing, literally every way you could possibly need to contact uh, to build a grassroots voter operation. Um, Numenar would do that for you too. So it, it really was, and that's what I kind of mean by end to end. Um, it did the whole, the whole shebang for you. Um, and where the AI kind of comes in is that we take the feedback we get from voters when we're running our grassroots operation. So when we're knocking doors, when we're making calls, people are responding to us, to our campaign, to our message. And we collect that data, those responses, and improve the modeling based off of those responses. And that's something that um, is only possible because we built this end-to-end -end system where we could see every phase of the campaign decision-making process and um, collect all of the metadata and make the most, uh, the, po the possibly, the sort of most informed decisions possible about, um, you know, the campaign with that. And so what, what's been the reaction of campaign managers? You know, I think of 
the all the movies of the grizzled old guy with the cigar in his mouth who's been around for 50 years you know dad is the redheaded stepchild of the campaign and yeah we'll do it because we have to but you know it's all about knocking on doors and getting the candidate in front of people like how has the evolution of the data scientist and the data element occurred in recent times and how integrated are you into the whole strategy of the campaign yeah um you know there are, there are tens of thousands of elected offices and ton, you know thousand an equal number of consultants so uh it, it definitely varies um and i've met every every possible type of consultant at this point it feels like um so yeah i think there are people who are on the i guess you would call it the tail end of the adoption curve uh when it comes to data and campaigns but i think we're at a point where you know um voter data and analytics and targeting have become such a um an ex you know people at least understand the need for it at this point um at least in the abstract um you know they don't necessarily know exactly how best to fit it into their campaigns and their strategy but they know that at least there's a need for it um but at the same time i you know i think numenar was built with uh the thesis that you know there's not a great product currently for campaigns to be like yes i need data and here's the solution for that you know here here's a here's a good solution for how i'm going to run a systematically data-driven campaign as a state legislative candidate um so i i think we're at a really good time i think in the market when it as, in one way uh, where people understand the need for it um, and uh, they're very interested in at least having a conversation about how how to use it. Um, you know, that said, I think there are a lot of there are very few people who are building um, tools or using data in a way that's actually um, helpful. Um, and part of that's just because there aren't a lot of data people or a lot of engineers in politics, you know, there are a lot of political operatives in politics and um, the Silicon Valley world and the, you know, political consulting class don't generally ever touch. So um, it's hard to have both skill sets and do both well. So speaking of that, you know, I understand you guys are venture backed, if I understand it right, at least seed funding and maybe series A, you'll have to correct me, but What's the reaction for investors for campaign tech? It seems like, you know, is there the option to be the unicorn? They want the big returns. How do they respond to your business model in a very niche market? Yeah, um, I think fundraising has been one of the, one of the coolest parts of, of this whole journey. Um, and so we are not VC backed. Um, we have raised a, an angel in a series uh, and sorry, an angel in a seed round. Um, at this point, we raised about a million dollars altogether. Um, and we we knew from the outset that uh, we weren't going to raise VC money for two reasons. Um, number one, uh, they wouldn't give it to us because we're uh, we're an explicitly uh, we're an, we're a firm with an explicit mission of serving conservatives and serving Republicans. And uh, you know, the way of the world is just that no, you know, VCs, even even sympathetic VCs would tell me that, you know, that's not a that's not a, a viable pitch to any board. So um, which is funny because, you know, you hear about these Democratic firms like Hustle 
that raised something like $40 million from Google's venture fund uh, to serve only progressives. And so there's, you know, there might be a little bit of a double standard there, but, you know, I'm not complaining too much um, because of the second point, which is that I didn't think we wanted to have VC money because we're not, um, I guess I didn't want us to be a company that had two masters, I suppose, one being, you know, maximizing as much money as we can, building a, 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 a $10 million, $100 million company, um, but also trying to serve this sort of mission-oriented focus as well. Um, I wasn't sure we could do, I wasn't even sure we could do both. Um, I knew I could do one. And um, I don't think, uh, I think it would have been misleading if I had told investors that I was really in this to make uh, a huge company that was going to make a lot of money um, because that is ultimately what I did get into this for. I mean, I think if I uh, wanted to do that, I would probably be working at, you know, Citadel right now or some Silicon Valley company. Um, I think I'm really interested in this because I, I'm mission oriented. I, I love the mission. I love the the use case. I love the people we're serving. I love the, you know, the the idea that we could be Using, doing something I love to help people who I believe in, um, you know, serve serve this country. So for that reason, we found a lot of people who really believe in that mission. Um, but we're also, but also knew that we could build a very um, viable business off of off of this in, in this space. So I think finding people who matched that vision was pretty important for us. So we ended up raising from a lot of really really cool. Um, conservatives, uh, angels, um, especially, uh, who, who kind of were on the same page. And so how's business going? Like how many campaigns are you with right now? And what is the business model? Yeah. Um, you know, the growth has been pretty, pretty cool. Um, you know, we built the MVP after I graduated last summer, we moved to DC uh, built the MVP of Numenar, uh, and we said if we could get ten campaigns and make like ten thousand dollars just that first year, uh, we'd keep doing it. We'd you know quit our quit our job offers and do it and and do it another year. And so we did. We did hit that range. We made about twice as much as we thought we would make that year. Um, so you know we decided to raise our seed round and do it another year in 2020 this last year so you know um over the course of this year we now have 60 campaigns uh going into november and um you know we we had a revenue target for this year as well that we thought was pretty ambitious and it looks like we're on track to to beat that this year as well uh, which is really cool uh considering that you know a year ago um we almost didn't have a product so uh and um in terms of the pricing model, we try to make it, you know, as SaaS focused as possible. So it's just a monthly subscription. The The subscription price just depends on, you know, the size of your race, what kind of race you're running, if it's a state house versus a congressional race. Um, and so you just pay that monthly subscription and you get access to the whole platform, the, the unlimited sort of analytics, uh, the data, the voter contact, all of that. Um, and then 
We also, because we built the voter contact tools, we also charge for things like calls and texts and emails and postcards sent through our system. Um, so it's sort of two revenue streams. And in terms of like the talent you're able to hire, you, you know, you mentioned you're mostly focused, you are focused on exclusively conservative candidates. Um, and given that the intersection of love for politics and love for data entertaining data is a limited pool in and of itself, how do you think about like staffing your own team so that you are able to give the best to your clients, but also ensure that they're as mission focused as you are? Has that been an, a, a challenge for y'all? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's been surprising to me about building Numenar has been, I has been the biggest challenge to building it has actually been recruiting, um, which I did not think getting into it. Um, you know, I would have thought it would have been building a product or finding customers or something like that. And it definitely is finding people who, you know, are at the intersection of being uh, just very high quality, uh, technical, um, interested in politics, um, interested in startups, and um and also conservative um that's that's a pretty narrow pool and um you know i think we've the power of network that of networks um is so crucial here and um i think we've been able to to make some really really fantastic hires uh, over the last year we're now up to about 10 people so um you know i think i think we've learned a lot of lessons even just over the last year, but um, the pe people are out there. And I think uh, when you find them, I think they're uh, the kind of company we're building, the kinds of technology and data we're, we're using. And uh, I think our fo our unique focus is is pretty um, pretty attractive to, to people who are in, at that intersection. So you mentioned you have 60 races right now that you're running. What's the distribution mission down ballot like? State house, congressional. What's kind of the the scope of what you're what you're tackling? Yeah, I'd say the uh, the middle, the sort of the majority, the middle fifty percent of campaigns are state house and state senate races. Um, that's kind of our that was our that's always been our focus. Um, so that's our bread and butter. Uh, and then we have about twenty five percent on one end that sort of congressional races, um, statewide races. Um, and then on the other side, we have another tail end of um, local races. So uh, city council, mayoral, um, even down to like school superintendent board, you know. Um, so it, it really does span the range at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been cool to get to see, To it, it's been really cool to get to see how campaigns are run from many different, you know, uh, in many different iterations, I suppose. Uh, and at many different levels. And so what are you seeing on the ground? Like, are there campaigns that have been able to leverage the AI and the insights it's developing to change their strategy or adapt? Like, what, what's a tangible example to show the impact of what y'all are doing? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you one retrospective um, analysis that we did because I think it's really interesting. Well, I could give a couple, depends on how much time we have. But, um, you know, I think they're really interesting examples where, um, for example, we did a for Virginia state Senate race where um, going into 2019, the uh, the base scores 
what the RNC had predicted for those races would be what were that um, turnout would be about 33%, which is historically consistent. Um, and the, the, the use case for the Numenor AI was we had these folks send texts, messages, text surveys about how people were likely to vote. Um, and so they just sent these to a universe of people in their district and got the responses and the AI took those responses into account and went from a 33 to 43% prediction on turnout, which is a pretty big jump, um, you know, and uh, actual turnout in that race ended up being about 45%. So we were almost exactly on the, on the, on the money there. Uh, another example, you know, this year we did a Republican primary a couple months back, three, a three-way primary uh, between three Republicans. And that's an, ex you know, that's a very hard thing to model uh, because amongst three primary, three Republican, you know, primary opponents, there's not a whole lot to go off of in terms of like distinctiveness. Um, so we, again, using our, I think they, I think it was a text, uh, it was a text campaign as well, although they might've done call user calling as well. Um, but we just, you know, sent that, got the responses back, you know, figured out how voters felt about these different folks and AI took a look at that and then, and then essentially predicted the race, you know, candidate A, B, C and the vote share breakdown almost exactly correctly. We even looked into the precinct level below below the top line results, the results for each precinct, and it was only off by an average of like 20, 25 votes per precinct. Um, so, you know, again, that's not always going to be the case, um, but I think it's really promising. I think what's really interesting and where we're moving the envelope forward is not just looking at static data, immutable characteristics about people to predict, you know, you're you're a white suburban voter in this zip code therefore you will do this um to a more adaptive one that's like you know that's what we initially think maybe based off of historical you know whatever results but uh it's also important to talk to voters and get their feedback and and uh over the course of a, a campaign you might talk to tens of thousands of voters and we should be collecting that data and learning from it and improving our predictions uh, and our targeting and our campaign strategy based off of that. So I think those are two, I think for me, pretty interesting, compelling examples of, of what that could look like. Are we at the point where you collect enough data on X number of individuals and you approximately know they probably care most about immigration or national defense or something, where you can then send targeted mailers to those specific, because, you know, we're getting inundated right now. We're in a semi-swing district for the congressional race. And, you know, I'll get all these random mailers and they're very generic. And, you know, you know, this incumbent congressperson said this and, you know, I won't do this. And I get it. Like, that's the message that probably in general resonates. But for me, I have a very specific issue set. Like, would you be able mm -hmm. to say, okay, based on Ben's behavior, we think, you know, the defense budget issues are important. Let's create a mailer specifically for the 20 people in the district that care about that. Like, are we to that point yet? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's exactly what one of the things we try to do. Um, and interesting, we have data about people who are veterans uh, or have served in the, the military. Um, so, you know, and I think, you know, zooming out a little bit, you know, when you think about Netflix and Amazon and this whole push towards personalization, um, I think obviously in many ways that can be very, um, dangerous. Uh, but I think in the political context, there are some uh, potential benefits um, 
you know, I, I like you, I'm a voter with who cares about a very particular set of issues. Uh, I care a lot about social issues. And, um, you know, if the candidate's going to send me, they can send me mailers all day about, you know, the economy or how they're going to build this thing or that thing. But I, I you know, I, I care about these three things. And um, I would love to be engaged about those three things. I'd love to hear your position on them and, you know, decide my vote on it. And so, you know, one of the things that we do with the AI can do is it builds all sorts of customized models, anything you could, you possibly want to be able to predict about voters, as long as you have some sort of data that can give us a signal of how voters think about that. So for example, you know, vet, vet, you know, being a veteran is probably correlated with caring about the, the defense budget. Um, and of course, you can, all, you can always, uh, in your canvassing surveys or in your call scripts or anything like that, talk to people about what they think about the, the national defense. Um, and so we can take that data and build models about anything, you know, um, anything that you think people would be interested in and, and would want to hear about. Um, and, you know, surprisingly, there was, I remember there's a race in Virginia where people really cared about poll, like poll taxes, um, like paying, like for turnpike, turn, paying at turnpikes. That was, that was the number one issue. And I don't, you know, no one, no one thought about that at all. Um, but it ended up being a really in, important issue. And they started targeting a lot of their messaging around getting the polls down. Um, and I think, I think that's pretty good for a lot of, you know, pretty obvious reasons. I think, you know, candidates start responding to what their constituents care about. Uh, it starts to become a little bit more personalized. You know, um, I think people can feel like they have personal interactions with candidates. I think if that's possible, if we can reach that one day, um, I think we could see a lot higher voter engagement um, and a lot more overall civic engagement. You know, one of the things I've always thought about is you mentioned like, hey, primary 33% turnout ended up being 45%. Even presidentials are 55 to 60% nationally and then with variants across the states. But that means that there's like a 40% group of people who are not voting and if elections truly are swayed by one or two percent of the, those who vote if you can even get an increase in two to three percent of new voters or folks who aren't engaged um that's that's the ball game right there um but those obviously require a lot of investment and you're kind of taking a huge chance on that um and so given given the data you have how do you flip those people to actually voting in the first place, but then voting for, for you? Like that seems to be the, the Holy grail of, of winning elections, but also the most difficult for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's going to be one of, one of the retrospective analysis I'm most looking forward to doing is looking at the correlation between our field operation focus and turnout in, you know, particular precincts and, and seeing how that, seeing how an investment in, in resource uh, can produce a uh, an increase in turnout, because that is one of the things we can actually uh, measure at the individual level. We can tell for each voter whether you voted in 2020 or not. Um, so it's one of the most measurable, quantifiable metrics we have. Um, yeah, I think there, there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of people who think a lot about that issue. Um, you know, new new voter registration is such a huge part of the game. Um, 
and people are constantly trying to find data, uh, you know, beyond the voter file uh, of people who have not voted, uh, who could be recruited to vote. Um, so I think, like you said, that's, I think it's a very important issue. Um, I think, you know, and this is kind of where my bias will come out a little bit, but, um, you know, when I, when I think about someone who has never voted before and just doesn't find any interest in voting, I don't see a TV ad or a mailer, uh, convincing them to, to turn out. Um, I think the only, the way to reach people has always, in, in my opinion, is, is always, it should be grassroots focused, should be personal, should be, you know, getting a call from someone, getting a text. I think that's one a really powerful tool. Um, getting a door knock. I feel like those kinds of things where, you know, I can reach you about an issue you care about um, and reach you personally in a way that's not just interrupting you, your, your YouTube video or whatever, um, is going to make the biggest difference. Or, or hearing about me through a friend or someone you go to church with or something like that. I think that's going to, that's going to make the difference. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, what, what that new voter registration looks like, what, what, um, turning, turning out the vote looks like, I think, um, I think focusing a lot on grassroots, focusing a lot on networks, uh, and communities, I think, um, and peer to peer interactions is really, um, the future of what that will look like. So what, what are you seeing on the ground? We talked about, you know, the strategy changes, but like, what are the trends for 2020 that are emerging from the data that you're seeing across these races you're running? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, even looking back all the way to 2019, uh, you know, we, there was a, there was a pretty big backlash, especially in Virginia, where we were doing a lot of work against, I presume it'll be Trump, um, you know, candidates pretty drastically underperformed turnout was very very high um this year i think you know you still see a lot of those same kinds of effects um but what's been interesting has been following a lot of our these special elections that have been cropping up before the year and giving us a little bit of like a sneak peek into what 2020 could look like and seeing that actually Actually, even in very, very close, very targeted, very high profile races, you see Republicans coming out on top. So, you know, I'm thinking like Mike Garcia in California. Um, we were even supporting uh, several special elections ourselves in Pennsylvania that were supposed to be Democratic wins that we, we you know, ended up winning. Um, in general, I think the trend has been seeing a lot of Republicans winning these early special elections very, by very small margins. I mean, you know, these are very tight races, but they do, and they've been coming out ahead. Um, at the national level, you know, I think the polling we've been doing is 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 showing uh, uh, at the national level, um, Trump being, a, you know, several points down in, in most swing states. Um, so, you know, I guess the jury is still out on exactly how that'll look, but, you know, I think at the local level, at the state house, state senate level, um, I think I'm encouraged by by some of the special election results we've been seeing, and uh, you know one of the things AI the Numenor AI does is, is it tracks its predictions over time, and so we can see the trend line change over time. Still extremely close, um, but in many races we actually you know many of these tight races we're supposed to lose were were actually a little bit ahead. And is is data 
kind of a price of admission at this point where the campaign's going to be equally matched? Or is there still a world in which the campaign that has data advice, those that choose not to use it are going to have a distinct advantage? Like, are you are you getting victories on the margin or is the platform you're providing a true game changer compared to an opponent who chooses not to, to go down that path? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, if I understand your question correctly, um, I think the power of data is that enables you to be very organized, very systematic, um, and very uh, precise about the way that you campaign. I mean, ultimately, you know, I can't pretend like Numenar takes out, it takes like even close to like 50% of what winning an election is about because an election is, you know, presumed hopefully about ideas, about positions, about candidates. Um, so I think that's, that's what's going to decide hopefully, um, how, how voters vote. Um, I think data is really kind of a force multiplier though. Um, it takes, um, you know, those strengths that you might have, um, and it makes it, uh, and it, and it gives you a very granular, very systematic approach to figuring out how you're going to win your race, given your campaign and your candidate and your and your platform. Um, and I think it's, I, I mean, I'm biased, of course, but I think it's extremely, extremely powerful. And um, someone who can use it very well, um, and I think there is a, a whole new generation of really young tech forward Republicans who are running and, and are able to think about campaigns in this way, um, I think it can give you more than just a, an edge. Um, I think it, it can it can be the difference between a whole margin of votes. And with those younger folks that you're mentioning, you know, the new generation has a different mindset. Are these the candidates driving it? Is it the staff? Is it the consultants? Like, where's the engine to push this into campaigns? Yeah, um, you know, I, can, I think it can be any of those things. Uh, oftentimes, there are consultants that are uh, just really just understand it, um, love it, and just push for it. And they push it in a lot of campaigns that they run. Um, and but and oftentimes, it's also the the, the candidates, candidates themselves, especially at the local level, state house level, they're not, you know, they don't have huge staffs or anything like that. So they're, um, so, so candidates are often the ones who are making the decision about Numenar. Um, you know, when you get to bigger races, then yes, I think staff and consultants are, are a lot, are a little, a lot bigger a part of the decision-making process. Um, if I think about where you know how we're going to produce like a whole mindset mindset shift though um historically in the party that's kind of been from it's kind of been a top-down type thing it's been people at the top of the ticket leadership um people at the institutional level thinking about um data and thinking about technology in a very forward-thinking way in, in the way that they did in 2012 um and that kind of has trickle-down effects um you know, about how state GOPs and caucuses run and in turn how, you know, down ballot races run. Um, and I think there are a lot of reasons to be pretty optimistic about, um, you know, a lot of the people who we have at the committees who are making very smart decisions, I think, about about data. Mm -hmm. So after after November 3rd, it seems like this is a pretty cyclical industry. What is, 
do incumbents keep this for their campaigns? You know, in the off years, is it about recruiting the, the off cycle elections, which are fewer than the on cycle? Like, what does the business cyclicality for y'all look like? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a cyclical business, definitely. I mean, next year, there's going to be probably three or four states that have much of anything going on. Um, we did a lot of that last year in 2019. Um, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I'm realizing is in some ways to become, to, to be able to be a political company, we have to be a non-political company, uh, which means we need to have a business that's uh, at least as strong as, if not stronger than our political business, uh, just to get us through the cyclicality and the kinds of um, barriers that come with working in a very cyclical space. Um, so I think you know there are a lot of ways we're thinking about doing that. Part of that, you know, some some of the, the that those ideas are going through, you know, worked with working with advocacy groups, uh, doing polling, which has actually been starting to be an increasingly large part of our business. Um, actually, a former campaign that uh, candidate who won her seat last year using Numenar recruited us to run polls with our tooling and with our data and our outreach tools for her polling firm, and that's been an extremely valuable part of our business. And so I think um, there are a lot of opportunities like that. Another thing that's really exciting for me is is working in international campaigns, actually, and going to, you know, Sweden and France and England and um, Germany and, and, you know, countries who honestly, like, you know, they're several, several years behind us, even when it comes to to thinking about these kinds of things uh, in campaigning in this way. And so thinking about, you know, just how much of an advantage this could be there uh, is pretty exciting too. Well, I hope you talked to Steve Hilton at the event we were at last month and got <laughs> a card for David Cameron, but. Um, uh, yeah, Steve's great. <laughs> you've mentioned text a number of times and I'll be honest, maybe this is just the, the older millennial in me. When I get a campaign text, I either want to say something snarky and engage the Democrat who's texting me or even the Republican who I don't necessarily going to vote for in like, you know, the ridiculous questions. But it sounds like there's a lot of engagement via text. You talk about like what the reaction is for most people on text. Mm. A distraction. Well, I think it's powerful. I mean, because everyone texts at this point, you know, text is such, I mean, you know, what, I can read you like all sorts of sales scripts about this, something like 95% of text messages are opened, you know, in a world where like ads are like, you know, the, the engagements and like the single digits, you know, that's pretty incredible. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why text is a very, very powerful um, platform, but everyone I talk to, you know, that's not in the political space, they hear about text, can't political text, and they just kind of groan because, you know, um, because unfortunately, the way that text texting has just been so abused, um, and you know, yeah, I mean, I can I can opine a little, little bit more about this, but I think in many ways, political messaging itself and marketing and fundraising is pretty broken too in the way that people do it. Um, it's a lot of you know just ridiculous um, framing and just you know kind of in some ways kind of. Um, Kind of taking advantage a little bit of, of of people who you know that you know just you know 
800% match if you donate tonight. You know, the Democrats are going to, you know, it, it just kind of a little bit hyperbolic, a little bit, you know, I just, it seems really bothersome, honestly. So I think that's, you know, actually one area that we're trying to try and shift, shift directions a little bit. Cause I think, you know, when you hear about a tool like that, you'd think it's like, oh, it's like a TV ad, but it's like five cents and I can send it to like a million people and they'll all read it. Um, when really it should be more like, no, this is an extremely personal thing. Um, you know, you're reaching someone on in a very personal way. This is a great opportunity to build a relationship with, with your voters um, that can be responsive. It's like two ways, you know, the, um, you can text them back, they can text you and, you know, you can have a conversation. And I think, um, if it's used in that kind of way, I think it's actually really, there's so much promise. And I think it's really unfortunate that, um, the way that it's being used is people just take a huge list of cell phones and blast a message to every, to everyone. Um, and I just don't think, I mean, it's kind of a race to the bottom a little bit. And I, I don't, and it's, I think it's very possible the whole industry gets completely regulated away. Um, posts, you know, maybe this election cycle, maybe next, but um, it could have been a really great thing. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll, the jury's still out, but. Yeah. So I, what kind of messaging do you use then in text to get to the more personal aspects as opposed to the, hey, give five fifty dollars now to stop the blue wave or whatever? <laughs> um, you you mean like what kinds of things work? Yeah, like what what works for like a, a an exhausted public with getting random political texts? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a bit of an idealist, um, and you know, I I I really think that in some ways. You know, yeah, political fundraising is a kind of a perennial question amongst Republicans because we look at like the Democrats, we look at their small dollar donors, we look at their younger voters, we look at these um, and the strength of it, especially this cycle has been, you know, overwhelming. You know, they just raise so, so much more money than Republicans have. And Republican donors tend to be, you know, older, they tend to give more, but fewer, you know, and in fewer iterations. And um, I think in some ways it's not bad to look at what the Democrats are doing and and say, yeah, we need to in some ways be able to do that um, and engage people, engage ordinary people in a way that makes them feel uh, like they have a stake in what's going on. Like, um, and I think a lot of that's very relationship based. Uh, I think politics should be relationship based. You know, it's not; it doesn't feel that way now. Um, but in a world where that is a possibility, and I think that starts at the local level, state, state house, state senate level. Um, I, I think people, if I feel like I have a stake with a candidate, I'll donate to them. Um, and if I feel like I'm, you know, if I, yeah, if I feel like I have a stake, if I feel like I have a relationship with a candidate or a campaign, then I, then I'll donate, you know, and I think we have to potentially focus on cultivating that kind of approach again. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that mindset. Well, Will, thanks for spending the time with us today. I love what you're doing with Numenar. And, uh, you know, after November 3rd, I'm interested to see how well your races did compared to a baseline and see if you guys actually made a difference or, or what kind of contribution you made. Um, love the growth that you have. And I, I know you guys will continue to have an impact down the line. Uh, so thanks for sharing your story and uh, look forward to chatting more later.
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Cheers, team. Thanks again for listening to A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. Be back next week with another great edition. Cheers. Have a good night.